How can you be part of a religious community that straight up denies Sometimes science it feels or like sees the it as suspicious? The church seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest of the Why are they so obsessed with people? I would never be a part of a church that is not welcoming as well as some churches still don't want to claim that worship was the actual thing. Do you understand how ridiculous that is when the majority of people on the church seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest of the culture is How is that actually? It seems like so much of the church's concern is being a good anti-critical thing or being homophobic, too narrow, judgmental, disconnected from what is truly happening in the real world. The church needs therapy. Welcome to the newest episode of The Church Needs Therapy. And today, our very special guest is Dr. Angela Parker. Dr. Parker is an assistant professor of New Testament and Greek at McAfee School of Theology at Mercer University, based in Atlanta now. She received her BA in Religion and Philosophy from Shaw University, her MTS from Duke Divinity School, and, a, and her PhD in Bible, Culture, and Hermeneutics from Chicago Theological Seminary. Was Bryson White there when you were there at all? No, he was not. So Okay, he, he was mm-hmm. like in the Watkins, me, Fuller, like kind of era, but he's, I think he's finishing up there right now. I okay, understand. I thought maybe you knew him. <laughs> um, before this position... Dr. Parker was assistant professor of biblical studies at the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology for four years. And in her research, Dr. Parker merges womanist thought and post-colonial theory, which is why it's just so good while reading biblical texts. And Dr. Parker has an up-and-coming book coming out September 14th, which you can pre-order now on Amazon called If God Breathes, If God Still Breathes, Why Can't I? Black Lives Matter and Biblical Authority. To learn to breathe again, I love this, Dr. Parker says, we must let God breathe in us. I could keep going on the intro, but we're going to start here. First, Dr. Parker, thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with me personally today and with the listeners as a whole. Well, I appreciate the invitation, Kevin. Thank you so much. Yeah, let's always do this. Let's let's start by introducing yourself to the people like a bit more personally. Like if we zoom out a bit, right? Because we only have an hour, right? We're not, this isn't, you know, not a five hour dinner together right now. If we zoom out a bit, what are some of the bigger picture movements in your life, specifically with your relationship with the church that kind of help make sense of who you are and where you are today? Thank you. That's a great question because I really credit my own upbringing in Black Baptist tradition, Mm -hmm. in addition to the experiences of being licensed and ordained Mm -hmm. even before going into seminary. Mm -hmm. So I was licensed and ordained as a woman in the Missionary Baptist Association prior to even finishing a community college degree, a bachelor's degree, master's, and PhD. And one of the refrains that I heard while going through the ordination process was, this would have all been easier if you were a man. Mm. So that was the first thing that sticks with me. But also, I, at that time, was a single parent. And so experiencing the conversations that I had in church and 
also raising children and going back to school when they were teenagers is also part of my own background that propels me into this particular position of being a New Testament professor mm. and really understanding who I am as a womanist because I got womanism <laughs> from the knee without even realizing I had mm. womanism from the knee. Mm. And I say that because even when I think about being licensed, being ordained, and then going back to school, I always wanted to know more than people thought I should have known. Mm. And that is part of the background of why I even read text the way I read text and what it now means to be, I often say, a fourth or fifth career person in the mm. academy, because just from the little bit that I've unpacked for you all, college did not take at 18. Mm. It took years for college and research and writing and understanding to really take in my life. And so I think the combination of all of that to this point is a great introduction into why I read text the way I read text. Mm. Mm, yeah. Yeah. It's always so important for people to hear the story because so often it's regardless of what we say, our experiences in our lives and what we've been through is the message. You know, what, what we're saying flows out of that. You don't, you cannot, no matter how much people in the past have tried, you cannot separate those two of what we're saying and where we're saying it from, you know, you tell in the intro, you tell the story of the origins of this book and you write, Quote, I was shocked when my seemingly, in my mind, simple statement that the doctrines of inerrancy and infallibility serve as tools of white supremacy become the beginning of a year-long process of outlining my thoughts. Can you tell the people what, where did that come from? What was the story that led to like the, it was a catalyst towards beginning the work that became the book? Well, the interesting thing is I began my career, as you've already outlined, at the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology, which promotes itself and is what is identifiably a progressive evangelical institution. Mm. And so as we are living in a world where the title evangelicalism is often <laughs> fraught with fights and infighting from different denominations and different sects of Christianity in the United States of America, it was interesting to me to be invited to a liberating evangelicalism conference mm. that oftentimes when we think about church, we don't realize that church is still very much divided in the mm. United States because Martin Luther King talked about the segregated hour of, of the 11 o'clock hour. And even though there are really good churches that are embracing multi-ethnic worship and multicultural worship and just having those conversations, there were still, there were still interesting ways that I was labeled evangelical mm -hmm. without even realizing that I was being labeled evangelical. Because I don't think in Black Baptist traditions, 
we think about evangelicalism in the same way that mm -hmm. I would say white Baptists or white right. traditions think about evangelicalism. So it was easy for me to make the statement that inerrancy, the doctrines of inerrancy and infallibility were tools of white supremacist authoritarianism because as a woman who is ordained by God to preach and to teach and to study and has a brain, that was one of those moments where I did not, I did not think it was a, a heavy duty statement, hmm. but I think it was a heavy duty statement because it was a statement that actually lived in my body just by who I was hmm. as an ordained woman preaching and teaching biblical texts to large groups of people. And so I had to spend some time and at least begin to unpack what authority of biblical texts look like for me, because no matter what, there is a way that the Bible is an authority in my life. That, that's mm. just never going to change. Mm. But I had to begin to wrestle with how white supremacy as authoritarianism mm. was a beginning or part of the ways that doctrines of inerrancy and, and, and infallibility are taught. Mm. And I think that they're still taught in ways that stifle questioning that the layperson in a pew may be able to ask because the authoritarianistic views of the person at the top of whatever congregation or denomination is wielding the power that stops people from having better conversations with the text. And mm. I think the conversations that we're supposed to have with the text actually unpack issues of authority versus authoritarianism and unpack inerrant, inerrancy and infallibility because we can see that in our biblical text, there are so many different worldviews wrapped up from Genesis to Revelation. Mm. So how do we actually unpack that conversation, knowing that I think for a lot of us who are embodied differently in these United States of America, we've already begun to unpack those conversations, even if we don't write about it. Yeah, the, even even that, that phrase or the idea of like infallibility and uh, inerrancy being tools of, of white supremacy, I laugh because like I'm disconnected enough from the culture to like laugh at it because it doesn't bother me. I'm like, I get it. But I'm also aware of the culture enough to be like, I know how somebody could hear that at a conference if they've if they've never if they've never listened to the voices of people of color, if they've never listened to people on the margins, if they've never even heard of black theology, if they've never heard of womanist theology. They haven't even had anything remotely close to ever seeing inerrancy or infallibility as ways in which they can be weaponized or used in, in, from power and privileged at, in an authoritarian way to oppress exactly. the very bodies they're not listening to in the first place. You know, like, so for me, I laugh because I'm like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. But I'm like, oh, yeah, but I could see how at a conference, <laughs> if you said that, there might be some questions. Yes, and, and, and Twitter started with, oh, my goodness, who is this woman? What is going on? What is she saying? And, mm. and as soon as I began to experience the 
the conversations that happen in Twitter world and Facebook world and beginning to say, oh, this is something I need to write about to mm. at least begin to unpack that position. And to be honest, I don't think <clears throat> I've unpacked it enough just yet. I wow. think this is one of those conversations that will be going on for a while because I can imagine pushback and continued questioning and, and further conversations on what all of this looks like in mm-hmm. actual faith communities. Absolutely. Yeah, I definitely, I, I, from what I see, you know, with the landscape of the church, and even though there's a million different expressions yes. of the church, there is no the church, but mm-hmm. from what I see with the landscape of churches as a whole, I think the work you're doing in voices who are sort of speaking from a this similar horizon have a lot to say you know, to where things are going right now. And it really, not just, you know, you talk about, you know, the prophetic voice in your book, you know, the prophetic, not just calling out the old, but imagining the new as well for people to move forward into. And I think that's part of the creativity that God places in us as humanity. Mm. And what does it look like to begin to, to imagine and to wonder and to dream about what, creative and prophetic expressions of what Christianity looks like in the world that have been different from what we've already done. That's why in Dr. Parker's, if she ever has to go through another ordination process, they're going to ask her what she thinks about those doctrines. They're like inerrancy, tool of white supremacy, infallibility, refer to last question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You, you write, I need to find this quote right now. Okay. You also write, I believe it is in the intro, maybe the first chapter we quote, we have all had doctrines of white supremacist authoritarianism take up residence in our minds and our bodies. I love more and more people, you know, listening to voices and knowing the embodiedness of all of this moving just from the mind, you know, into our entire being in an embodied way, which I love. So, white supremacist authoritarianism taking a residency in our minds and our bodies, then you ask the question, what will we do to exercise those demons? I'm going to tell you a really short story that I'm going to ask you a question off that. All right. So when I, when I was at Fuller and I think it was when I'm taking an intro to black theology course, Dr. Ralph C. Watkins, I mentioned him off air. He's mm-hmm. the man. He's like one of my favorite people in the world. He's one of the most spellbinding communicators I've ever been around. I could listen to him talk for three hours straight, which he did in class, so I got to all the time. <laughs> and I, I think it was one of the first classes he actually showed the famous, like, pinnacle climax scene from The Exorcism, <laughs> you know, yeah. which I think is probably from mm-hmm. the 70s, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, not the best, you know, graphics compared to our standards today, but you know, it's a movie where the scene is they're exercising an evil spirit or a demon from this young girl. And when you watch it, it is a very intense and violent and, you know, the language is inappropriate for church settings. You know, the, the it's, it's, it has a, it causes a visceral reaction. It changes the atmosphere of a, like the, the demon changes the atmosphere of not only the scene, but in the classroom, you know, yes. as we watch it. With that said, and the intensity of what an exorcism would look like on film, why is exorcism an appropriate or accurate term to use when we talk about sending away 
um, as Will Coleman says, you know, uh, dismantling white supremacy, uh, overcome whatever. Why, why is exorcism, when you say, what are we going to do about it? Why is that an a- accurate term when we talk about the presence and power of white supremacy and in institutions and theology and all around us? Well, we have to realize that <clears throat> we are experiencing the demons of white supremacy, both within individual bodies, but also within collective groups of people. Mm-hmm. And I think that the <clears throat> January 6th riot showed what white supremacy can do for those who even espouse Christianity and mm. begin to make the equations between white Jesus and 45, talking about the last mm. president, because I don't really like saying his name. <laughs> and we saw how large groups of people can come together and actually show what a large group of spiritually linked people can do. And that spirit, I would argue, is not the same spirit that propels me to do the work that I do. So when I think Mm. about January 6th, I think that there is an overarching spirit that says, I'm supposed to have power no matter what. Don't tread upon my power. Don't tread upon my rights, which we're still Mm. having conversations about Mm. rights in the age of COVID and Mm. the pandemic. And what does it mean to begin to actually actively exercise those demons, both from individuals and large groups of people? The way Mm. that January 6th occurred, you can liken that to the, I don't know if this is a a clear analogy, but think about about Mark chapter five, where those, the, the legion demon, Mm. the legion, the demon named legion Mm. says that I'm in this person and we are many. And Mm. Jesus casts the, that demon into a herd of pigs. Mm. That herd was rushing. And Mm. so when I think about that herd rushing, I think about that January 6th rush. And so I don't, I cannot imagine why exercising demons is not what we're supposed to be doing Mm. as we all walk in the faith in, in our faith in Christ and with the faith of Christ, Mm. that part of what we are supposed to be doing is actually walking around this land and exercising those demons that are violent, that, Mm. that kill, that maim, that destroy, that, we have to clean up after. Mm. <laughs> I mean, just think about that scene and the messiness of it. Mm. There's no other way we can talk about exercising white supremacist authoritarianism without equating what it does as a demon within individuals and the collective body. Mm. Wow. So good. Yeah. That's a, uh... I mean, if that's not the sermon right after January 6th, then, uh, mm-hmm. then I don't know what is. You know, when, you, when we talk about, you know, that idea of exercising the demon or demons of white supremacy as we see it expressed, not just in the, the lives of individuals, but through herds of people or in institutions and structures themselves. I think that was one of the, 
You know, it's, I think about the Occupy Wall Street movement of 2010. You're like, well, okay, well, what came of it structurally? And people are like, well, I don't know. I'm like, but what, what some people would say, one of the sort of discursive, one of the powerful things that came out of it is just that idea of the 99 and the one when we think mm-hmm. about economics. You know, that's a powerful thing for people to remember. Yeah. And a similar way, I think the past year or so, you know, COVID, post-George Floyd, these massive uprisings, which is not a new, uh, which is not a novel movement for liberation. You know, it is a unique expression of where we are in a long history of people working for liberation, you know, specifically, you know, for, for black folks in America. And I, it, I, I sometimes I'm interested because one of the phrases, like I, I'll joke around with some people on here. I'm like the phrase for, you know, freshly woke white folks of 2020 is systemic racism, you know, which I think you can push that one step further and say institutionalized white supremacy, but you know, we're all taking, we're taking steps culturally, we're taking steps. And I think that movement from thinking about racism from individual bigotry to how it works in and through systems and structures is one of the most important ones while we're thinking today about how racism and white supremacy is still present in our context where it's like when you ha- when you understand the distinction between individual bigotry hey i i have no problem with black folks mm-hmm. i got a one black friend well we're not really friends but we work together and talk <laughs> but we work together <laughs> Oh, we're cool though. And <laughs> on like, your end. <laughs> you know, where, where it's like, you know, I'm, I can't be racist. Like I don't, I'm not sitting around thinking evil thoughts about people who of a different color, people from different races. But when you see that jump where it's like where a person can, sure, you might not have, and we actually all have unconscious biases, but you might not see yourself as that. Okay. But you can still be fully complicit within reinforcing and perpetuating yes. systems and structures that are holding on to the very forms of power that are dehumanizing and marginalizing groups of people. And that distinction is such a helpful one. So do you see that, you know, this, this last year or so, like systemic racism and this, like, is that a helpful thing? Are there limitations towards people seeing that? How do you think about that as it's kind of come up more and more? Great question. As it has come up more and more, I still probably believe and hold to the thought that, especially in the minds of white folk who are now woke to systemic racism, they are still thinking about the problems as the problems of black folk or Mm. the problems of brown folk. They're not thinking about it as a problem in whiteness Mm. because think about it people still have issues with actually claiming whiteness Mm. the united states of america is very individualistic and Mm. still has the manifest destiny idea of you know pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and so any person should be able to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and so it's not the problem of whiteness it's the problem of those other folks who have not been able to pull themselves up by their bootstraps Mm -hmm. so part of the change in conversation i would argue needs to be how whiteness actually talks about whiteness and how Mm -hmm. whiteness replicates itself so when i talk about exercising 
the demons of whiteness out of my own mind and body, I have to interrogate myself and say, in what ways have I wanted to be in bed with whiteness in such a way that I can succeed or be successful in this, that, or the other area that I'm trying to be successful in. And I have to ask myself and actually have long conversations with myself about how I negotiate whiteness in my Mm -hmm. own mind and in my own body. Because sometimes you still, we live in this, we live in this country. We live on a global planet wherein whiteness and colonialism, settler colonialism has all infiltrated this globe. Mm. And it's so ingrained in us that I have to constantly ask myself, all right, Angela, how are you negotiating with whiteness today? Where, where are the, where's the line that you can stop and have a hard line? And where's the, the moments where you have to just kind of negotiate in order just to make it through the day? Mm. And that's a negotiation that I have to constantly be aware of as I navigate as a black woman in the world. Mm. And so whiteness does not have that conversation with itself oftentimes. I talk about privilege and oftentimes, especially with students or even thinking about privilege in church settings, people will argue against, I don't have privilege. I don't, I don't, I don't have this or that or this status or that status. And that may be true, but there are varying levels of privilege and how it works. So one example I give students was um, going into my office building in Seattle and recognizing that folks will address me as Dr. Parker. Oh, hello, Dr. Parker. How are you? But I just got off the bus where someone hurled the N word at me. Mm -hmm. So I experienced the easy breezy way that someone could throw a racial slur at me on the bus, Mm -hmm. but then have to slide into acting and appearing normal and assimilated in a space where others would address me as Dr. Parker and not by the N-word. And so when you think about levels of privilege, sometimes your body entering spaces, you can expect to be accepted. You can expect to have people listen to your voice. You can Mm -hmm. expect to open your mouth and someone may hang on your every word. However, if people don't know me, if people don't know me as Dr. Angela Parker, or they just see me as random black woman, then I may not have that same level of privilege that is often afforded to white folks. Mm. So I think that's part of the conversation that still needs to be had Mm. in the United States and in global context. Yeah. I think the, the varying degrees of privilege is such an important conversation, you know, negotiating Mm -hmm. whiteness in different settings for everybody, not just for people of color. Exactly. And you know, Hawaii is such a unique place culturally, you know, it it really is. I mean, you know, technically, you know, legally Hawaii is, you know, the, I forget if it's the 49th or 50th state of the United States of America against statehood in 1959. There was an illegal overthrow of Hawaii in 1893. So you can talk to some people in Hawaii and they would say, well, we're not, you know, we don't consider ourselves a state. We consider ourselves under military occupation by the United Mm -hmm. States of America. Mm. And what's interesting is 
even being here, like for example, when I was surfing out this spot yesterday and this can happen in different times, but when I'm surfing out there, I'm like, I'm the only white guy here right now. You know, it's, you know, Hawaii, it's like if you meet local people and you're like, okay, I kind of, you, they ask you their ethnic makeup. It's like, oh, I'm part Hawaiian, part Chinese, part Holly, which basically means white, you know, part gotcha. Portuguese, part this. Okay, cool. This person, I'm part Filipino, part like a lot of people are, are very mixed like that. Like that's kind of just mm -hmm. standard when people share what they are. Yes. So, you know, there's a bunch of local guys out there. I'm the only white guy that happens in other settings. You know, I've gotten vibed out at spots over here the last 15 years where I can just wow. feel, I'm like, okay, there's an energy here. Mm -hmm. Like there's two things I want to say about that. One, that is why I think some white kids from the mainland would come here and go to school or to move out here and struggle because they've grown up in predominantly white spaces. And that is one of the defining marks of privilege is you never have to even reflect on or think about whether or not you belong. Cause everywhere you've been, you've always just been a part of the thing, you know, exactly. you don't have to think about it. Mm -hmm. And so one, I think kids have to negotiate some of their whiteness for the first time here mm -hmm. and it's unsettling and it's unnerving and it's disturbing. Right. So yes. they can deal with challenges because of that. I've, I've had a few of those, nothing major, but you know, over the years, like, oh, I, I kind of got a vibe here, whatever. Yes. But at the same time, a white kid or a Howley kid out here cannot then say, well, now I know what it's like to be black in America. Now I know <laughs> what it's like, because even with the history of Hawaii, I would tell people, you can experience moments of social or cultural marginalization here. Nothing major, you know, just like little moments like that but you are still politically and economically privileged here because of the history of the sugar plantations and mm -hmm. the economy here. So even with that, when some white folks here are like, Oh, well being in Hawaii, you know, I'll get vibed out. It's like this. I'm like, you can deal with some of that, but there is not an entire political and economic system that is in place that is leveraged against your thriving, against your well being, and against your flourishing, you know? So yeah. even negotiating, whiteness like you say out here is such a unique and different thing than doing it on you know the the mainland or the continent mm -hmm. as some people would mm -hmm. call it you know but yeah. that i think more and more because of the conversations that are happening culturally is something that not just people of color who have always had to do that mm -hmm. you know but even white people are becoming slightly more aware of what it means to even begin negotiating some of that. And that's why so many people are so damn uncomfortable and pissed off because exactly. you have power and privilege. You don't want to think about it. You don't want to you know? think about that. <laughs> you know, think, yeah, yeah, go no, ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> I think the interesting thing about this, especially when you think about white folk on the continent, or as I was thinking I, in my brain, I was thinking, Oh, the contiguous 48 States. I got it. <laughs> 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 There's that idea that even when they read biblical text, that biblical text is monolithic with one group of people, hence mm. Jew Jew Jewish people or maybe thinking about Roman Empire, but they still think about white folk as representative even in the biblical text. <laughs> I think what's interesting for me and for my work is beginning to problematize and actually show different shades of color in the biblical text and thinking about 
what proto-racism could look like as mm. uh, some scholars like Gabe Byron have understood proto-racism in the biblical text. Mm. And then having conversations, especially with those folks who have grown up in a, a white culture where they haven't had to navigate any, any issues of identity regarding their whiteness, having to, to navigate that even within biblical texts and then having nuanced conversations about how they navigate that when they go to Hawaii, how they navigate that when they come to the South and maybe see larger groups of black folks in different parts of the South or in Chicago or wherever they may find themselves. How, what does the emotional intelligence of that person begin to look like? How does it begin to grow when you think about, oh my goodness, there are large groups of people in the Bible. There are large groups of people in the United States. There are mm -hmm. different groups of people in Hawaii. You go to Seoul, Korea, it's going to look different as well. Mm -hmm. How do you become an emotionally mature human being, or even, dare I say, a, an emotionally mature Christian in mm -hmm. the midst of all this? How mm -hmm. do you have those conversations. Absolutely. How do you get away from baby Christianity to actually being mature and actually realizing that, especially in these um, on the continent or the contigu contiguous 48 states, that whiteness has melded into something that's all white and has not even remembered that, oh, I was part German or I was part Italian or mm. I was part Sicilian. And whiteness on the, on the continent has actually erased all of that. Absolutely. So how do you have those conversations as well that mm. push you toward that emotional intelligence that I hope we get to someday? Yeah. Yeah. I remember when I was younger and first like learning about the migration patterns and histories and why there was a value for people to basically disregard and disidentify with some of their cultural heritages or their national heritages coming from Scotland, Ireland, Germany, or whatever it is. And it just became this, sort of one ambiguous white like we're white you mm -hmm. know and you see the effects today like i i feel like there's people like 20s and 30s you know white kids who are like what like i want to get a celtic cross tattoo <laughs> even though i'm not really a christian but my family's irish but i don't know what it means to be irish like there mm -hmm. is a loss of like history and legacy and identity into this yes. one sort of whiteness you know which is just mm -hmm. a strange thing for people to navigate and I love how you talk about the emotional or cultural intelligence of navigating whiteness in multiracial, multicultural spaces. Because when I was in grad school and doing all, and doing my my work in uh, in my master's program, I'm like, you know, like I told you before, studying black and womanist thought. You're learning like histories, and you just I'm so immersed in every in all of that. <laughs> But then when I moved back to Hawaii, I'm like, that's not the same history right. that's mm -hmm. here. You know, you could say race could be triangulated mm -hmm. in the, on, on, the, on the continent or in the mainland of like, from the beginning, it was like, okay, indigenous people, black people brought us slaves and white folks. Okay, that was kind of like the three that kind of started. But in Hawaii, that's not the case at all. You know, mm -hmm. even to this day, Hawaii is like two to 3% black folks, you know? Right. Like, it's a, the, the, it was triangulated more of like indigenous native Hawaiians, mm -hmm. non-Hawaiian locals who came here largely because they were brought into work in plantations and waves. And then white folks who came missionaries, colonization, expansionism. We did it again. You know, another, <laughs> another, another expression of that. Right. But, now, but for me, it was like, there isn't a one-to-one -one of like, well, now I know how 
the VA loans created suburbs and worked in mm-hmm. black folks with basic health limits. I'm like, that's virtually irrelevant here in some ways in our yeah. live local life. But mm-hmm. that work gave me the tools along with my upbringing too in, in diverse spaces, but it gave me the tools to navigate this different environment where it looks different, but where it's, I'm navigating whiteness in the right. unique way mm-hmm. it's expressed here. And that is, you know, that skill, those tools, and the humility that is going to be required for people who have been so used to power and privilege to negotiate that with humility in those spaces is like, those are, that's one of the things for the future. That's going to be one of those essential, not taught in school things. That's going to be so helpful, especially as Christians, if we're really talking about loving our neighbor Mm -hmm. and being present to each other. Well, and I think the conversation the conversation of space and place become Mm. important. We just saw, again, going back to January 6th, and we see Capitol Police doing or giving testimony to in a Senate hearing or a House hearing, which one of the hearings that occurred. And he makes, one of the Capitol Police officers makes an aside comment of, well, if it was a regular tourist visit, no wonder other countries don't like Americans as tourists. Because we don't often go to different places and think about the history of a place and a space that we are going into. We oftentimes automatically imagine that the space and the place that we're going into is made for us. And one of the things that I often tell students when I think about academic spaces Academic spaces were not made for all of us, and we have to pay attention to that. You, if you're going to Honolulu, Honolulu, you have to realize that there is a different history mm-hmm. and a different, different type of space and place there. So how do you enter into places with humility and actually learn about places first? Mm-hmm. One of the best conversations I had with my advisor when I was doing doctoral work was she said to me, you will be an academic and you'll probably have to move. And so Mm -hmm. it will take five years for a space to actually begin to feel like home. Mm -hmm. We think that everything is instant gratification, Mm -hmm. that you go somewhere and it automatically becomes your space sometimes. And when I say we, this is going back to the conversation of how whiteness ingrained in me has to be exercised out because in some areas I have been that same person Mm. and I don't want to be that person either. So when we talk about identity and space and place, no matter what, all of us are supposed to come into any space and place with you with humility. Mm. And I think that's part of the emotional intelligence that we're trying to get to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this is a question. You know, it's funny. Whenever I start an interview, I'm like, oh, I have these questions. Am I going to have enough time? And then 30, 40 minutes goes by. I'm like, I, I haven't even barely asked any questions yet. You know, just keep, <laughs> I just keep going. But that, mean, that means that it's good, though. So um. There's so much to discuss. And I think as passionate people who feel callings on our lives, there's so many things that we could tackle. And so how do we at least begin to unpack some of the things that we're tackling and beginning to think about and beginning to critically engage, not just surface level, but actually a little bit deeper. Mm, Yeah. 
Yeah, you, you write this, and I really want you to speak to this. In your book, you write, quote, I think a lot of MDiv, for people who don't know, an MDiv is a Master's of Divinity. It's like a kind of like a, it's a graduate level degree a lot of pastors and folks kind of get, right? So it's mm-hmm. not always an expectation, but it's one of those things people do. So Dr. Parker writes, I think a lot of MDiv programs train students to be chaplains for the empire and not a prophet for the revolution. (laughs) And to that I say, yes. And for the sake of the listeners, what do you mean by that? (laughs) (laughs) So one of the questions I often ask students, and this was actually helpful in shaping the questions that I asked, not just Masters of Divinity students, but also those therapists who I had the fortune to train and to to engage with even when I was in Seattle, that part of what Masters of Divinity and even a Master of Arts in um, counseling, counseling psychology can do is actually train people to help people be comfortable in their oppressions. Mm. And I don't think that biblical studies or counseling is supposed to help us feel comfortable in our oppressions. So I would argue that a prophet for revolution or a prophet for transformation is going to be that person who's going to say, all right, here's what's going on in your life. Here's what's going on in your ministry. Here's what's going on in the counseling session that we're talking through. Here's what's going on. Now, instead of just continuously talking to me about it, what are you going to get up and do about it? Mm. And that's where I think faithfulness is really important for, for hopefully a lot of us who are listening. Faithfulness in Christ and the faith of Christ allows us to actually move, to actually do, and to actually transform. So I don't need to be a chaplain who's going to help people be comfortable in oppressive situations, in poverty, in, in domestic abuse, in any of those issues that oftentimes church leaders say we're supposed to endure. One of the interesting aspects of my own life is thinking about how church leaders have said, oh, well, this is your lot as a woman and this is what you're supposed to endure, basically training me to be okay in my oppression. Mm. And so prophets for revolution and for transformation are the ones who actually flip the tables and say, no, we can't be complicit in our oppressions and comfortable in our oppressions. What are we going to do to change them? What, when we think about our lives as Christians, as followers of Jesus, what is required from the prophet that is not required for the chaplain to the empire? What is, you know, what are the resources we need, whether it's courage or bravery? What is challenging about being the prophet that's a little more comfortable for you just a chaplain to the empire going golfing, you know, with Pharaoh or whatever? <laughs> I think the most challenging aspect of being prophet for transformation and revolution is voice and agency. Mm-hmm. Because when you exert voice and when you exert agency, that often becomes problematic to the folks in power who do not want you to exert voice Mm -hmm. and agency. Mm -hmm. It is very easy to be silent and say nothing. And you think that your silence will actually protect you, but oftentimes silence does not protect. 
It's only when we raise a cry, only when we raise a scream, only when we raise the guttural, ah, that says, I can't just take this anymore without saying something. Jeremiah, fire shut up in your bones where you just can't not, you can't not hold someone to account with voice and with agency. You just have to do that. Mm, so I think, good. And that's hard. And I, I know that that is hard. I think one of, one of the other asides that I see as a professor, I often see women not raising voice in class because they're not used to raising voice in class. So I will experience men who always know the answer first, always are very eager to speak first. And sometimes I imagine, no one said this yet, but I imagine it's disconcerting when I point that out to students. And I say, did you all notice that five guys just spoke and not a woman said a word? What the, what's going on? What's going on in your wow. mind? And what does it look like to require that people begin to raise their voice and exert agency, especially those from under underprivileged groups, women, mm. minoritized people. What does that look like? So good. What, what are some of the examples in general or ones that have inspired and spoken to you personally of seeing prophets of the revolution in the history of the United States, the history of the church, inside the church, outside the church? You know, where have you seen some of, who are some of those prophets of the revolution for you that you've seen? I really love following the work of the Poor People's Campaign with mm. Dr. Reverend Dr. William Barber. The idea that more people have to come together. And I, I think it goes back to the conversation we're just having about whiteness, that silence from whiteness also kills whiteness. It, it kills white folk, I should say. It kills just as easily as silence kills the black and brown folk who are marching for the poor people's campaign. But black and brown folk are not the only people who are poor. So what does it look like to gain and gather more people together so that we can fight capitalistic practices that are also connected to systemic racist practices? What does that look like? Mm. So Reverend Dr. William Barber is one of those first that comes to my mind. I think that I also uphold the work of interfaith communities within the, goodness, I'm blanking on the, on the actual organization. But there's a Thursdays in Black that normally occurs on social media spaces. Thursdays in Black. Mm. And Thursdays in Black are those moments where we're thinking about how women across the globe go through trafficking, how we still haven't found all the girls from the Boho, Boho Haram, um, South Africa, kidnapping, uh -huh. and even now thinking about what's happening in Afghanistan with women who for a brief period of time were experiencing education and, and thinking about what life could be like on the other side of 
just having oppressive conditions placed on them, that there are folks who are also in the world of global systemic abuses against women that they're trying to fight and combat. And I'm, I apologize, I'm blanking on names. Mm. <laughs> but I think those are some of the issues when we think locally for the United States of America, but then also think globally as well. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I love that you mentioned um, Dr. Barber because people can still look at the Poor People's Campaign and the work that Dr. William Barber is doing right now. That wasn't just, oh, he was, a, it wasn't, he was a friend of Martin Luther King back in the day. No, he's doing the work and continuing the work of that legacy still to this day. So people who are interested, you can still look at the Poor People's Campaign and what he's doing today, which is yes. amazing. So I'm glad that you brought somebody who's right now doing it so people can yes. see that. But then also, I live in Fulton County, Georgia, and I never knew that Fulton County, Georgia would become a hotbed for there's something wrong happening in Fulton County, Georgia, when we mm. think about the past presidential election. And when I think about, I live in Fulton County, Georgia, I also think about the organizations such as Black Votes Matter. So we mm. talk about Black Lives Matter, but also Black Votes Matter. And so that's another organization that is really trying to be systematic about making sure that black voters are registered, are making sure that black voters are participating in not just presidential elections, but also local elections because they have ramifications as well for society. And I am a progressive black Baptist woman living in Fulton County. And so of course, Fulton County would be a change or would make a change because more folks like me are moving into places like Fulton County, Georgia. Mm -hmm. And I'm still very much offended and attacked by what I hear when people talk about something went wrong in Fulton County, Georgia. Mm -hmm. So black votes matter. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as a person of the text, Mm -hmm. Right. You love the, 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 the Bible, the sacred scriptures, the text, a person who teaches it, preaches it, loves it, fights with it, wrestles with it, questions it, encourages everybody to do all of that with it. Right. A real living relationship with what is, you know, how the scriptures and how the text bears witness to the good news. Where do you see. Right. You can. In MDiv, you can train someone to be a chaplain for the empire. And in order to be a Christian who's a chaplain for the empire, you need a Jesus who's going to uphold the status quo and also reinforce the empire. And there's a lot of those that, that Jesus is being preached all over. He's alive and well, apparently, you know. Yes. <laughs> Where And if you want to be a prophet for the revolution, if we want to think about Black Lives Matter and biblical authority, you know, if God still breathes, why can't I? We also need a liberating Christ. We need a liberating Jesus from the Gospels who shows us and leads us in the spirit who calls us forward on that way of liberation beyond the status quo and boundaries of the empire, right? Mm -hmm. where, do, where do you see the liberating Jesus in the Gospels? That's a great question. I often go through the Gospels in teaching and point out the, the humanity of Jesus that mm. we often don't want to see. Mm. And when I talk about the humanity of Jesus that we often don't want to see, I think that 
what we see in the Jesus upholding empire is based on a one-sided view of the divinity of Jesus, the all-powerful, mm. all-conquering Jesus, who mm. is the license on the license plate on a place in Texas that is super masculine and hyper masculine, and that's the that's the Jesus that I follow, that they follow, <laughs> and so I point out the Jesus that wrestles, and mm. when I say the Jesus that wrestles. I'm specifically thinking about Matthew 15, and I'm also thinking about Matthew chapter 8, I believe. In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus has a conversation with a Roman centurion where the Roman centurion says, asks Jesus to heal his enslaved person. Mm -hmm. And Jesus says, oh, of course, I will go with you right now to heal that enslaved person. But the Roman centurion says, no, Jesus, I'm a man under authority, just as you are. And if you say the word, my slave will be healed. And Jesus says something remarkable about that Roman centurion. But at Matthew 15, Jesus has a conversation. Well, a woman who's from the Canaanite identity is screaming after Jesus to help for Jesus to help heal her daughter. Mm. And Jesus does not answer a word. And Jesus actually calls her a slur. Mm. And we think about that text, and we usually focus on a Jesus who is really, this is what is normally taught in churches. Jesus is growing that woman's faith. Jesus did not answer her because he has to teach her a lesson about about growing faith, something like that. And that's a very uh, John Calvinistic reading of that text. (laughs) But I ask, do we always have to give Jesus a pass? Mm. And this is where it becomes kind of tense in the classroom. (laughs) And I say, what does it look like to think about Jesus being in his own humanity at that moment and actually being kind of ethnocentric. Mm. And if he's being ethnocentric, but in the previous example of Matthew chapter eight, where he's having the conversation with the Roman centurion and Jesus is actually perhaps being very identified with masculinity. Mm. And then we see, and I make the argument that something's happening with that conversation with the Canaanite woman at Matthew 15, that we actually see bearing out in the text. And when I say we see it bear out in the text, we see prior to Jesus having the conversation with the Canaanite woman, he feeds a group of people that are mostly Jewish. And at the end of that feeding, the number of baskets taken up is 12. And that number of baskets probably represents 12 tribes of Israel. But then after his conversation with that Canaanite woman, he does another feeding and he take at the end of that feeding, which is in a more diverse area, not just Jewish people, but Jewish and what we would call Gentile people as well. After the conversation with that Canaanite woman, Jesus does another miracle and that miracle takes at the end of that miracle takes up seven baskets of leftovers. Mm. 
seven signifying either number of completion or humanity, something different than the 12 tribes of Israel. That we see in the text, if we pay attention, and that's the thing, if we mm -hmm. pay attention, we see in the text a slightly shifted Jesus that instead of being enamored with masculinity and being enamored with only coming to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, we see a more inclusive and liberating Jesus that touches more people. Mm. So what does it look like to mm. actually take our text seriously and follow along even a human, fully human and fully divine Jesus who wrestles with, huh, maybe I'm being ethnocentric. What does it look like to change? And mm. we see it bear out in the text. That's the thing. Mm. If we pay attention to the text instead of proof texting text of what we want to say in a present argument or fight, if we actually sit with the text and chew on it, we can see how liberation becomes a theme that occurs in a book like the Gospel of Matthew. Mm, wow. Yeah, that's, that's so good. Following along the text, seeing, mm -hmm. you know, the seeming movement at times. You know, yes. the Mark 7 story, the Syrophoenician woman, that's also one of those ones where you're like, yes. he called her this. And mm -hmm. he basically said no, but then yes. she kind of called him out and then he did it. It's like, yes. she appears to be helping him get in touch with a deeper dimension of his own. You know what I'm saying? You're exactly. like, oh yeah, yes. it's, it's so <laughs> but wild. The thing yeah. is, we normally from our own Christian upbringings, we can't think about a changing Jesus mm. or a Jesus who actually has to confront what his own humanity looks like or experiences. Mm -hmm. And one of the arguments that I make is how can Jesus intercede for us if he has never experienced what it means to be humanity in this deep trying way? And I think that's the liberating Jesus. That's the liberating Jesus that moves us to be prophets for transformation and revolution for other people as well. And it takes away the individualistic idea of salvation and actually makes it what it's supposed to be community. Mm, so yeah. good. So, so good. I always have this sneaking suspicion that people, you know, when we uphold the divinity of Jesus, but downplay the humanity, I think people are scared of taking seriously the humanity of Jesus because it, mm -hmm. it, it invites us to take ours more seriously as well. Yes. Yes. I think the more divine Jesus is as an all powerful, all everything omnipotent, this, and he, to me that can be very stripping us of our own agency and power. And like, well, God's up there and does everything, but the more you get in touch with the humanity of Jesus, it weirdly puts us more in touch with our own humanity, which ha which is scary, but has the power to get us in touch with the agency and with the power and to move beyond that worshiping this hyper masculine, all powerful Jesus into actually following 
the real earthly Jesus who is doing the work. That's always my sneaking suspicion of like, <laughs> you don't want Jesus's humanity because you're still scared of embracing the fullness of your own power. I always kind of feel exactly. like that with some mm-hmm. folks. Um, and I think that woman is yeah. thought, no, woman is thought started with that idea. Think about Jacqueline Goldsby Grant's white women's Christ, black women's Jesus. Mm. It, it's right there. And for me coming along later as a womanist biblical scholar, I see that in the text. Mm. So, so good. Like you said, we're always passionate to talk, but you know, we have self-imposed limitations for me yes, and my podcast also to respect your time. Um, Cause I think it's four. 410? Yes, five. it's 410 here. Georgia, right. Okay. We're six hours apart. As far as the time is, as far as you can be apart in, yes. in being a part of the U.S. Um, mm-hmm. If God still breathes, why can't I? Black Lives Matter and Biblical Authority. Dr. Parker's upcoming book comes out September 14th. Angela N. Parker. Find it on Amazon pre-order. Get that on Kindle or get the copy sent to you. Um, I am so excited for people to tap in with the book who do and Dr. Parker, this was such a gift. I appreciate you taking the time and, uh, and doing this. Yeah. I'm really, really excited for people to be able to hear this. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate your work and what you're doing on the podcast and in Honolulu. So thank you, Kevin. Yeah. Thanks so much.